Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Friends, we've made it to October. And I have a whole lot of stuff planned for you guys this month. Plenty of folklore and state visits, original stories, as well as a couple of classics thrown in. I have two rounds of a Stephen King draft that I had done on one of the other shows I frequent, Draft Class. Plus two of the stories that are coming to my new show, The Nightmare Collective. All gonna be here. This month. It's gonna be a great Halloween. Let's get cooking. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on a journey through America's dark and haunted past as we explore the folklore and ghost stories that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. The renowned Goldfield Hotel is located in the near-deserted town of Goldfield, Nevada. Known for its rich history and infamous haunting tales, its origins can be traced back to the discovery of gold in 1902, 
propelling it to become Nevada's largest city as millions of dollars worth of ore were extracted from local mines. As with many mining towns, once the resources run dry, so did the town's prosperity. Along with the multiple saloons, Goldfield was home to three newspapers, five banks, a mining stock exchange, and a thriving population of nearly 35,000. In just eight years after Goldfield was founded, the volume of ore began to decline, and many residents moved on to more prosperous claims. Only about 1,500 people were left by 1920. A devastating fire destroyed 27 blocks of homes and businesses three years later. Though its population is less than 500 today, this once thriving city still offers several views of its prosperous past, with the Goldfield Hotel at its center. In 1908, the Goldfield Hotel, designed by architect George E. Holdsworth, opened to great fanfare. It replaced the former site of the Novato Hotel, which had burned down in 1905. The initial owners of the four-story stone and brick building were mostly J. Franklin Douglas and a few other investors. Constructed at a cost of over $300,000, it featured 154 rooms equipped with telephones, electric lights, and steam heat. The lobby was elegantly paneled in mahogany and furnished with black leather upholstery beneath opulent gold leaf ceilings and crystal chandeliers. That was something special. The hotel's imported European chefs and one of the first Otis elevators west of the Mississippi River added to its luxurious reputation. Within its appeal to high society, it quickly became a resounding success as the most lavish hotel between Chicago and San Francisco. After the hotel was built, it was sold to George Wingfield, the primary owner of the Goldfield Consolidated Mines Company, and hotel entrepreneur Casey McDaniel. Combining the Goldfield property with McDaniel's existing hotels to form the Bonanza Hotel Company. Despite owning a majority stake in the Bonanza Hotel Company, George Wingfield deferred management and operation duty to his primary partner, Casey McDaniel. Wingfield's wealth was immense, acquired through ownership of the Goldfield Consolidated Mines Company and various other ventures such as banks, ranches, and hotels in Reno. He also held a prominent role in Nevada's political scene, being recognized as a leader in the Democratic and Republican parties during the 1920s. Wingfield's control and influence were widely acknowledged and showcased when the failure of 12 banks under his ownership nearly led to the economic downfall of the state in 1932. In 1925, Newton Crumley, who owned the Commercial Hotel in Elko, Nevada, bought the Goldfield Hotel. Crumley, who also sought to profit from gold in the area, dug two mine shafts beneath the hotel. However, both resulted in what they call dry holes. During its peak, Goldfield's hotel welcomed a diverse group of wealthy guests. However, as the gold supply dwindled and the town's population decreased, the hotel slowly deteriorated. By the 1930s, with less than a thousand residents remaining in Goldfield, the hotel served mainly as a cheap lodging option for cowboys and unselective travelers. During World War II, it also provided housing for Army Air Corps personnel from the nearby Tonopah Air Base. Once the soldiers departed in 1945, the hotel permanently closed its doors. In recognition of its place in Goldfield's history, 
It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1982 as a contributing property within the Goldfield Historic District. Over several years, the hotel changed hands multiple times, each new owner making promises to restore and reopen the property. In 1985, a San Francisco investor named Lester O'Shea acquired the building and appeared to be making progress towards his plans. However, after a few years, when his renovation project was approximately 85% complete, his company declared bankruptcy, and the property returned to the county. In 2003, the county held an auction for the old hotel and nearly 90 other parcels of historic land around it. The sole bidder was Edgar Red Roberts, a rancher from Carson City who purchased the hotel for $360,000. It is said that Roberts intended to complete the restoration of the bottom two floors of the historic hotel in Goldfield, with an expected cost of $1 million. The renovation plans included a casino, 40 guest rooms, and a cafe. The town, which has been struggling, sees this as a potential boost for employment opportunities and tourism. However, they have heard similar promises and are not keeping their hopes up until they see tangible results. Unfortunately, during my research, there hasn't been any significant updates available on the Goldfield Hotel. It seems that the work has been hindered by instances of vandalism over the past few years, something not unusual given its eerie past and the attention it has received. According to reports, the old hotel is home to several ghosts, with one particular one gaining notoriety, a woman known as Elizabeth. Legend has it that she was a prostitute, who had frequent visits from George Wingfield. When Elizabeth became pregnant, she claimed that the child belonged to Wingfield, who paid her to keep their affair secret in fear of damaging his reputation. However, when she could no longer conceal her pregnancy, Wingfield lured her into room 109 and chained her to a radiator. She remained there until giving birth, with supplies but no mercy shown when she begged for help. Some say Elizabeth died during labor, while others believe Wingfield killed her afterwards and disposed of the newborn in an abandoned mineshaft. Rumors spread that Elizabeth's spirit still haunts the hotel, and many have heard a child's cries echoing from within its walls. This legend, however, has a few problems that don't mesh with the hotel history. The code asserts that Elizabeth died sometime in the 1930s when Wingfield no longer owned the hotel. A mining shaft was also built by Newton Crumley two years after he bought the property from Wingfield in 1923, where Newton Crumley said the baby was thrown into. We'll never know if this legend confuses Wingfield and Crumley, or if it ever occurred at all. Despite the legend's persistence, Elizabeth's sightings continue to be reported. She is often described as having long flowing hair and wearing a white gown appearing sad as she paces the hallways and calls out for her child. Some even claim to see her in room 109, an area known for its intense coldness. One incident involved a ghostly figure in a photograph taken in that room. Interestingly, many guests have noted that their cameras work fine throughout the rest of the hotel, and then they mysteriously malfunction in room 109. More than a dozen people have spotted two more ghosts who allegedly committed suicide in the hotel on the third floor. One of their identities is unknown, but it is believed that she hung herself, while the other jumped to his death from the hotel. The Stabber, that's a pretty original name, I wonder what he does, 
is said to randomly attack people crossing the threshold of the gold room. It is said that the stabber has never hurt anyone. I don't know if he deserves that name, then. Still, he has scared many before disappearing immediately after the so-called attack. Three small spirits, including two children and a little person, linger near the lobby staircase. They are said to be pranksters, sneaking up behind people and tapping their backs before giggling and dancing away. Legend has it that George Wingfield, the former owner, still haunts its halls. Some have reported the scent of his cigar smoke and fresh ashes, while others sense his presence near the grand staircase in the lobby. However, this tale raises some questions when considering the hotel's history. Wingfield rarely visited as an investor, leaving management to his partner, Casey McDaniel. Furthermore, Wingfield passed away in Reno, Nevada in 1959. It begs to wonder why his spirit would still linger at the Goldfield. The Goldfield Hotel has been featured on several paranormal investigation television shows. Interestingly enough, though, Psychics who have visited the old hotel claim that this place is a portal to another world. Perhaps there are a few more mysteries of the goldfield just waiting to be unlocked. Hey folks, October's here and I am very excited. It is my favorite month of the year. As soon as the weather changes and it's literally, at least in New Jersey, like halfway through September, it's like, ah, uh, boom. And summer's over, and now it's the fall. There's no gradual change. It's like 95 degrees one day, and then the next morning you wake up, and it's in the 60s, and you need a little coat. But uh, anyway, I'm excited for what I have coming for the show. Um, plenty of state-by-state -state stops. I think I'm going to do weekly state-by-state, -state, maybe more. I think if it, if I do go weekly, I'm going to end up uh, with New York right before Halloween, which I can't wait for because that is my hometown. And there's so many cool little things. When people think about New York City, they don't really think about like, oh, it's haunted, you know, because it's, I don't know, it's a city. People, a lot of people don't, I don't know. That's Maybe that's just me. Maybe other people out there. Maybe, maybe Chris, you're dope. But anywho, I'm excited for the things that I have to share with you this season. This spooky season, as it were. Plenty of uh, stories, a couple originals, a couple stories from the Nightmare Collective, which is going to start the last week of October, a couple days before Halloween. I think the Thursday, Friday before Halloween is when we're going to start. We're going to do back-to-back -back episodes. So Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, and then get rolling in November on the Nightmare Collective channel. So if you haven't, Head over there and subscribe for the original stories coming. I can't wait for you guys to hear these. Oh, boy, oh, boy. So we got that coming. And, uh, yeah, the conclusion to Zachary Bane will be released on Halloween. I know I think I've said this before that I was going to release it last Halloween. I can't believe it's been a year. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I left a lot of people hanging for so, so long before I give you closure to this. But like I said in the last episode, I was just so afraid to end it. But I think I'm at a point now where I'm ready and I'm happy with it and I'm excited for you guys to hear it. And uh, yeah, so uh, thank you everybody for the kind words and emails and voicemails and uh, reviews. The reviews have been pouring in. 
especially on Apple. Uh, someone left me a nicest review I've probably ever gotten. Uh, this is my last review. So uh, if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review, leave a comment on Spotify, send me an email, or send me a voicemail, or just share it with your friends and let them know that you like it, that you like Haunted American History, and that they should come and hang out with Chris. All right, let's, uh, let's keep Nevada rolling. Later, folks. Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion. It's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com haunted. I'll see you there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nine covered wagons left Springfield, Illinois on April 16, 1846, in a 2,500-mile journey to California. It is one of the greatest tragedies in westward migration history. The Donner Party's leader, James Fraser Reed, was a businessman from Illinois seeking wealth in the California lands. He also hoped that his wife Margaret's debilitating headaches would improve in the coastal climate. After reading the book, the Elements Guide to Oregon and California by Lansford W. Hastings, who promised a shortcut through the Great Basin, Reed was enticed by the prospect of saving 350 to 400 miles on an accessible route. However, 
He did not know that Hastings' claims were untested and motivated by his desire to create an empire at Sutter's Fort, which is now Sacramento. This false information would ultimately lead to the downfall of the Donner Party. The Donner family, Graves, Breens, Murphys, Eddies, McCutcheons, Keysburgs, Wolfingers, and seven Teamsters and several Bachelors soon joined Reed in seeking adventure and fortune in the vast West. All in all, 32 men and women and children were present in the initial group. Four children, Virginia, Patty, James, and Thomas, were accompanying James and Margaret Reed. Margaret's 70-year-old mother, Sarah Keyes, and two hired servants joined them as well. Despite her illness from consumption, Sarah Keyes insisted on staying with her daughter. Despite his success, Reed was determined that his family would not struggle during the long journey. Their wagon was an extravagant two-story affair with a built-in iron stove, spring cushion seats, and bunks for sleeping. Dubbed the Pioneer Palace Car by 12-year-old Virginia, it required eight oxen to pull. In nine new wagons, the group estimated the trip would take four months to cross the plains, deserts, mountain ranges, and rivers in their quest for California. They began their journey at Independence, Missouri, where the Oregon and California trails begin. The families of George and Jacob Donner were also included in the group. Clearly adventurous, the brothers decided to make a final trip to California, which ultimately would be their last. George Donner, who was 62, was a successful farmer who had migrated five times before settling in Springfield, Illinois with his brother Jacob. George's third wife, Tamzine, accompanied him with their three children, Francis, Georgia, and Eliza, and George's two daughters from a previous marriage, Aletha and Leanna, as well as her two children from an earlier marriage, Solomon and William Hook. Jacob Donner and his wife Elizabeth brought their five children, George, Mary, Isaac, Samuel, and Lewis. A copy of Lasford Hastings' guide was in Jacob Donner's saddlebag, containing tantalizing talk of a faster route to the Garden of the Earth. There were also two Teamsters, Noah James and Samuel Shoemaker, and a friend named John Denton. On the day the Illinois party headed west from Springfield, Lansford Hastings prepared to head east from California to see how the shortcut he had written about worked. It took three weeks for the wagon train to reach Independence, Missouri, where they replenished supplies. The following day, on May 12, 1846, they headed west again in the middle of a thunderstorm. A week later, they joined a large wagon train led by Colonel William H. Russell, camped on Indian Creek, about 100 miles west of Independence. The group now numbered 87 by the time it reached Indian Creek. High water held the train at the Big Blue River near Marysville, Kansas, for several days on May 25th. Sarah Keyes, the first passenger on the train, died here and was buried next to the river. The party then built ferries to cross the water and then followed Plate River for another month. The wagon train captain, William Russell, resigned along the way, and William M. Boggs assumed the position. After encountering a few problems along the trail, the pioneers reached Fort Laramie, just one week behind schedule. While at the fort, James Reed encountered a familiar face from Illinois, James Clayman. Clayman had recently journeyed eastward, using the newly proposed route with Hastings. However, he cautioned Reed against taking this path, 
as it was only feasible for travelers on foot and would be impossible for wagons. Additionally, he warned of the harsh desert conditions and daunting Sierra Nevadas ahead. Despite Clayman's strong recommendations to stick to the established wagon trail instead of the unproven shortcut, Reed ultimately disregarded this advice in hopes of reaching their destination faster. At the Continental Divide on July 11th, the pioneers were met by a man carrying a letter from Lansford W. Hastings, joined by other wagons in Fort Laramie. In the letter, Hastings promised to meet the party at Fort Bridger and take them to his cutoff instead of detouring northwest via Fort Hall, which is in present-day Idaho, which passed south of the Great Salt Lake. The letters successfully claimed any concerns the party had about the Hastings cutoff. On July 19th, they arrived at the Little Sandy River in present-day Wyoming, where the trail spit off into two routes. The known northern route and the untested Hastings cutoff. Most of the caravan took the safer way, while a group led by George Donner opted for the Hastings route. They reached Fort Bridger on July 28th, but found no sign of Langsford Hastings, only a note left with other travelers. According to the note, Hastings had departed with another group and advised later travelers to follow and catch up. Luis Vasquez and Jim Bridger reassured the Donner party that this was a reliable route. After resting for a few days and making repairs to their wagons, the party prepared for what they believed would be a seven-week journey. For the first week, the group made good progress at 10 to 12 miles per day in 20 wagons, joining up with the McCutcheon family on July 31st. After passing through Echo Canyon, the party reached the Weber River on August 6th. They stopped here when they found a note from Hastings telling them not to follow him down Weber Canyon as it was virtually impassable, but rather to follow a trail through the Salt Basin instead. I have to pause here for a second. I cannot believe that traveling across this country at that time and wagons being pulled by oxen and horses and your whole family's there and you're just going by just notes that you found. Just like, where? Nailed to a tree? Under a rock? This really... Pioneer times were absolutely bonkers. I can't, I really can't. As much ghost stuff as I read on this podcast and talk about and hauntings and stuff, this is the stuff that I just cannot wrap my head around. You want to tell me that there's a monster in your attic who tickles your kids' feet at night? Yep, I, I believe it. This, it's like, I just, I really just can't even fathom what happened. Let me continue, I'm sorry. As the group rested near present-day Hennifer, Utah, James Reed and two others rode ahead on horseback to meet up with Hastings. After locating the party at the southern edge of the Great Salt Lake, Hastings joined Reed for part of the journey back to reveal a new path which he claimed could be completed in about a week. As this was happening, the Gray's family caught up with the Donner Party, bringing their total size to 87 individuals and 23 wagons. After consulting with everyone, it was ultimately decided that instead of retracing their steps to Fort Bridger, they would attempt the newly suggested route. The wagon train set out on August 11th, braving the challenging trail through the West Dodge Mountains. They tirelessly worked to remove trees and other obstacles along their new route. Initially, they could only cover a maximum of two miles a day, 
which meant it took them six days just to travel eight miles. As they continued onwards, they realized that some wagons would need to be left behind. Like a work time pizza party, this caused morale to plummet. And the pioneers placed the blame squarely on Langsford Hastings. By the time they reached the shoreline, James Reed was also accused by the group. One of the caravan members died of consumption near Grantsville, Utah on August 25th. About this time, fear began to set in as provisions were running low and time was against them. In the 21 days since reaching the Weber River, that's a tongue twister, reaching the Weber River, reaching the Weber River, they had moved just 36 miles, I couldn't say properly, even slowly, reaching the Weber River. In the 21 days since reaching the Weber River, why do I write things that I cannot pronounce? Or my no, I, I write things that I know my tongue can't do. Anywho. After they reached the Weber River, they had moved just 36 miles. According to Hastings, the group set out on August 30th to cross the Great Salt Lake Desert, with the exception that it would only take two days. However, they soon faced unexpected challenges. Shock. The desert sand was wet and deep, causing their wagons to become stuck and significantly slowing them down. As their water supply dwindled, some of Reed's oxen went missing by the third day. It took them five long days to reach the end of the desert on September 4th, where they rested near Pilot Peak for several days. In total, 32 oxen were lost during their eight-mile journey through the Salt Lake Desert. Reed had to leave behind two wagons and others in the group, including Lewis Keysburg and the Donner family. Each lost one wagon as well. In the far western desert, an inventory of food was taken and was found to need improvement for the 600-mile trek ahead. Snow powdered the mountain peaks that night, and on September 26th, they reached Humboldt River. While traveling with the party, William McCutcheon and Charles Stanton were sent to Sutter's Fort, California, to bring supplies back after the difficult journey through the mountains and desert had depleted their supplies. On September 26th, the party finally reached the Humboldt River, after following the trail through Nevada and the Ruby Mountains for a period of time from September 10th to September 25th. Having traveled an additional 125 miles through strenuous mountain terrain and dry desert, the disillusioned party's resentment of Hastings and ultimately Reed was heightened tremendously. Yeah, I can't blame them. After reaching the California Trail Junction, about seven miles west of Elko, Nevada, the Donner Party spent the next two weeks traveling along the Humboldt River growing increasingly disillusioned. On October 5th, at Iron Point, two wagons became entangled, and a teamster named John Snyder began to whip his oxen. This angered fellow member James Reed, who ordered him to stop. When Snyder refused, Reed fatally stabbed him in the stomach. The rest of the Donner Party did not hesitate in taking action. While some, like Louis Kiesberg, wanted Reed to be hanged for his actions, the group ultimately decided to exile him instead. And without hesitation, Reed left his family behind and rode off to the west with a man named Walter Heron. As the Donner Party trekked along the Humboldt River, their remaining draft animals grew tired. In order to preserve their strength, those who were able walked alongside the wagons. On October 7th, two days after the Snyder incident, Louis Kiesberg dismissed a Belgian man named Hardcoop, who had been traveling with them. 
The elderly man's feet were badly swollen and he could not keep up with the rest of the group. He went from wagon to wagon seeking refuge, but was denied entry at each one. Exhausted and unable to walk any further, he was last seen sitting under a large sagebrush. Sadly, he was left there and eventually succumbed to his exhaustion. As the caravan's ordeals mounted and if things couldn't get any worse, on October 12th, Piute Indians attacked their oxen, killing 21 of them with poison-tipped arrows and further depleting their draft animals. Despite facing numerous obstacles, the group finally arrived at the gateway to the Sierra Nevada on October 16th, located on the Truckee River, now known as Reno. Unfortunately, their food supplies had dwindled significantly. Just three days later, on October 19th, one of the men from the party, Charles Stanton, returned with seven mules carrying beef and flour, along with two Indian guides. He also brought news of a viable but challenging route through the mountains. Sadly, William McCutcheon had fallen ill and remained behind at Fort Sutter with Stanton's partner. The caravan then took a five-day break, 50 miles away from their destination, to allow the oxen to recuperate for the final leg of their journey. This decision proved to be yet another in a series of choices that ultimately led to their tragic fate. A tired James Reed arrived at Sutter's Fort on October 28th, where he met William McCutcheon, who had recovered, and they began preparing to go home. In the meantime, while the wagon train continued to the base of the summit, George Donner's wagon axle broke, and he fell behind the rest of the party. During the repair of the wagon, 22 people, including the Donner family and hired men, stayed behind. Donner cut his hand badly while cutting timber for a new axle when a chisel slipped, causing the group to fall behind schedule. As the rest of the party continued to what is now known as Donner's Lake, snow began to fall. The two Indians traveling ahead reached the summit, but were unable to go any further. Their hopelessness led them to retrace their steps where five feet of snow had already fallen. When the wagon train was 12 miles from the Sierra Pass, they finally retreated to the eastern end of the lake, where a level ground and timber were plentiful after attempting to pass through the heavy snow. A cabin already stood at the lake, and upon realizing they were stranded, they built two more, sheltering 59 people in hopes that early snow would melt so they can continue their journey. Imagine you just get stuck somewhere and it's like, ah, I'm just going to build a house. It's like that Mitch Hedberg joke. I was lost, but now I live here. I have severely improved my predicament. They built three shelters from tents, quilts, buffalo robes, and brush to protect themselves from the harsh conditions as the snow continued to fall. It took two more attempts at Donner Lake to cross the pass in 20 feet of snow before they realized they would be stuck for the winter. The weather and their hopes did not improve. More small cabins were built, many of which were shared by more than one family. For the next four months, the remaining men, women, and children would huddle together in tents, makeshift lean-tos, and cabins. Reed and McCutcheon were determined to save their stranded companions in the mountains. However, after two days of travel, rain turned into snow as they reached higher elevation. Unable to continue the treacherous journey, they cached their provisions in Bear Valley and headed back to Sutter's Fort. Sadly, the needed reinforcements were unavailable due to the Mexican War. The men worried about the emigrants' well-being, but hoped they had enough meat to sustain them until rescue was possible. On Thanksgiving, it started snowing once again, and the pioneers at Donner Lake resorted to killing their last remaining oxen for food on November 29th. 
Their plans for leaving had been dashed by the five feet of snow that fell the next day. Many of their animals, including Sutter's mules, had wandered off into the storms, and their bodies had been lost under the snow. After slaughtering their last few cattle, the party began eating boiled hide, bones, twigs, and bark. Some men tried hunting unsuccessfully. On December 15th, the group was struck with tragedy as Bales Williams passed away from malnutrition. It became evident that immediate action was needed to be taken before anyone else suffered the same fate. The following day, a small group of individuals consisting of five men, nine women, and one child set off on snowshoes towards Sutter's Fort, determined to cover the 100-mile journey. However, their limited supplies and weakened physical state proved to be a daunting challenge. By the sixth day, their food supply had run out, forcing them to continue on for three more days without nourishment while braving harsh winds and frigid temperatures. Charles Stanton fell behind due to snow blindness and exhaustion, urging the rest of the party to carry on without him. He never returned. As they pushed onward, a blizzard hit and they struggled to keep the fire going for warmth. With Great Depression came unthinkable actions as Antonio, Patrick Dolan, Franklin Graves, and Lemuel Murphy succumbed to death. The remaining members were forced to resort to cannibalism in order to survive. Having sustained themselves on the remains of those who perished during their journey to Sutter's Fort, the group of snowshoers were left with only seven members upon reaching safety on January 19, 1847. Despite the loss of eight individuals, including seven who had been consumed by their companions, all five women managed to survive. The remaining men, William Eddy and William Foster, were among the survivors. Word was promptly spread to nearby settlements, and local residents quickly joined forces to rescue the remaining members of the Donner Party. On February 5th, the initial group of seven men departed from Johnson's Ranch, while the following party, led by James Reed, set out two days later. By February 19th, the first team had arrived at the lake and discovered a seemingly abandoned campsite until a ghostly woman appeared. Sadly, 12 emigrants had already passed away, and many of the remaining 48 were either struggling to survive or had lost their sanity completely. However, the ordeal was far from over. Due to limited resources and transportation options, not everyone could be rescued at once. The first relief party was forced to leave with only 23 refugees. Tragically, during the journey back to Sutter's Fort, two more children succumbed to the harsh conditions. As they descended from the mountains, the first relief party encountered the second relief party heading in the opposite direction. After five long months apart, the Reed family was finally reunited. On March 1st, the second relief party arrived at the lake and discovered gruesome evidence of cannibalism. The following day, they reached Adler Creek, where the Donner Group had also resorted to such desperate measures. However, on March 3rd, Reed departed from the camp with 17 of the starving emigrants. Just two days later, they were struck by another blizzard. When it subsided, one of the refugees, Isaac Donner, had passed away and many others were too frail to continue on. Reed and another rescuer named Hiram Miller decided to bring three of them along in hopes of finding food that had been previously stored along their route. Meanwhile, the remaining pioneers remained at what would later be known as Starved Camp. On March 12th, William Eddy and William Foster led the third relief group to Starved Camp. Sadly, 
Mrs. Greaves and her son Franklin had also perished there. The three bodies, including that of Isaac Donner, had been consumed for sustenance. Upon reaching the lake camp on the following day, they discovered that both of their sons had also passed away. On March 14th, they came upon Adler Creek Camp where George Donner's hand injury had become infected and he was nearing death. His wife was in relatively good health, but refused to leave him, choosing to send her three young daughters ahead without her. Four more members of the party joined the relief group, while those too weak to travel remained behind. Two rescuers, Jean Trudeau and Nicholas Clark, were assigned to care for the Donners, but eventually abandoned them in order to catch up with the rest of the group. In late March, a fourth rescue party set out, but they soon became stranded in a blinding snowstorm. What is going on? After reaching the camps on April 17th, the relief party found Louis Keysburg still alive among the mutilated remains of his former companions. Keysburg arrived at Sutter's Fort on April 29th, and it took four relief parties two months to rescue the entire party. In the Donner Party tragedy, two-thirds of the men perished, while two-thirds of the women and children survived. 41 people died, and 46 people survived. In the end, five had died before reaching the mountains. 35 had perished at the mountain camps or in an attempt to cross the mountains, and one had died before reaching the valley. Most of those who survived had lost their toes to frostbite. As soon as the Donner tragedy occurred, newspapers published letters and diaries accusing the travelers of bad conduct, cannibalism, and murder. There were a variety of viewpoints, biases, and recollections among the survivors, so it was never easy to determine what actually occurred. Some blamed the power-hungry Langsford Hastings for the tragedy, while others blamed James Reed for not heeding Clayman's warnings about the deadly route. In the aftermath of the publicity, California emigration dropped sharply, and Hastings' cutoff was almost abandoned. Then, in January of 1848, gold was discovered in John Sutter's mill in Colma, and gold-hungry travelers started the rush west again. More than 100,000 people had arrived in California in late 1849 in search of gold near the streams and canyons where the Donner Party had suffered. Donner Lake, named after the party, is today a popular mountain resort near Truckee, California, and the Donner Camp has been designated a National Historic Landmark. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. I'd like to give a shout to the newest member of my Patreon. Cammy. I will not be calling you by the name that you changed yourself to in the group. That was Sneaky Pool, my dear. Um, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for joining me over on Patreon. If anyone's interested in joining the Patreon, patreon.com slash history. Uh, Ad-free episodes, um, early releases and soon to be early releases of my stories from the Nightmare Collective when that comes out. So that's fun. Anywho, later folks, and happy October. See you guys real soon. Later. <laughs>